Well, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time together today, and thank you for the good word we heard this morning, and we pray that you will continue to uh, speak to us as we think on this book of 1 Corinthians and the message that uh, you have there for us, Uh, even though it was originally written to the people at Corinth, we know you have an intention and an application for us in our own lives. So we pray you'll help us to see that and be obedient to that, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, we're looking at the 1 Corinthians chapter 9 today, and uh, I was just thinking about this yesterday, how that uh, 1 Corinthians is a difficult book in a way because um, it's, uh, we call the New Testament letters occasional letters. We call the epistles occasional letters. And what that means is they were written uh, not as literary documents, not as like you'd write a novel or you'd write a history. Uh, the, the book of Acts was more a, not an occasional document. It was written for a specific purpose as a literary document to, to Luke and Acts were. But these, these epistles were written because some problem, some difficulty, some occasion. It's like when you write a letter, you know, you might... Who writes letters anymore? But we used to write letters years ago. And you would have an occasion. You have to, you know, you're writing for some purpose. Something has come up. You find out that a family member has an issue and you're writing about that or something. And so that's the way these epistles are. They're written for various occasions. And therefore, it's sometimes very difficult to think of what is, is there a theme to these things? Now, when you look at the book of Hebrews, that's different. That's not an occasional document, exactly. It's more of a literary document, and it has a theme, you know, the supremacy of Christ over the Old Testament and so forth. But in Corinthians, Paul is dealing with a church that he established, and he is now received a letter from them, an official letter, and so he's responding to their letters. So we have this ongoing back-and-forth conversation between the apostle who found the church and the people in that church. And they have various issues. One of the issues they have uh, is food sacrificed to idols. That's chapters 8, 9, and 10. Or actually 11, 1. If you take 11, 1 as applying to the previous section. So this is the issue of the fact that in the ancient world, people spent a lot of time in the various temples. There have archaeologists have discovered at least 26 temples or sacred places in Corinth. So there were temples everywhere. Just like we have restaurants on every corner, there was a temple on every corner. And people would go there to eat meals and for celebrations. We talked about this. And they just were occasion to go in there all their lives. And part of that was worship the gods. There was no separation of church and state in the ancient world or for most of the world. So if you were in Corinth, you honored the gods that were worshipped in Corinth. You could have your own gods, but you worshipped the Corinthian gods too. And so as you went to the temple, and you maybe go there for a meal, for a celebration, for a birthday celebration, for any kind of festival, event, uh, you would be eating food that 
was sacrificed to an idol in some sort of worship service. The problem Paul sees for Corinthians going to these things is the idolatry involved. Remember, this is what gets Christians, I've said, in trouble in the 2nd century, the 3rd century. This is what gets them killed and persecuted is they refuse to worship the Roman gods. And all the Romans require is just offer a little incense on the altar. Just offer a little incense to Zeus on the altar, to Jupiter on the altar, and you'll be okay, you know. You can love, you can love Jesus, but just worship Jews. Just worship the emperor a little bit. Just worship Jupiter. And they most of them wouldn't do it. That guy gets you killed, you know. Because that's looked upon as unpatriotic. You're against Rome. If you won't worship the Roman gods, you're against the government of Rome. So Paul has a real problem here trying to persuade these Corinthians that it's wrong to worship in these temples, even to go there for these seemingly harmless things. And so he's dealing with that. We looked at that first of all in chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Now, Paul in chapter 10... Remember, this is chapters 8, 9, and 10. In chapter 10, he will say, you just cannot go. It's idolatry, pure and simple. These are not harmless gods of wood or stone. They are demons behind this. Satan is behind idolatry. Yeah, it's true. Their idols are nothing in themselves. But in chapter 8, he decides to take a different tack here, remember? He says, the problem, one of the problems that you have in and going to these temples and maybe encouraging others to go is the harm that you're doing to this other person. Remember, there are certain people in Corinth who are saying, you know, these gods don't really exist, that we don't we don't believe in them, they're just made up stuff, you know, there is no Zeus, there is no Mercury, there is no Hermes, you know, they, they don't really exist. And therefore, uh, we can just go there without any problems. But Paul says the problem, one of the problems is that not everybody has that kind of knowledge. They've come out of idolatry. They still think of these gods as having existed. And by your conduct, you're sort of encouraging them. If they see you sitting in the idol temple, they're going to be, they can be pushed back into idolatry. So Paul's, Paul's point in chapter 8 is that it's not that not your knowledge that's the basis of your conduct. Now, their knowledge is wrong here, <laughs> unfortunately, because they say these gods don't... Their knowledge is right in the sense that God don't, the gods don't exist, but their knowledge is wrong in the sense there are demons behind it. They're not looking at that. But sometimes, even if we're right, we have to be careful how we act towards a fellow Christian, even though what we believe and what we know is right. We have to be careful that we don't cause a fellow Christian to, as Paul will say here, go against their conscience. So Paul Paul does not want any Christian to go against their conscience. And if, you, if a Christian feels that this is wrong to do this, they shouldn't do it. Now their conscience may be telling them the wrong thing. The conscience can be taught incorrectly. It can come with wrong beliefs. And so we want to we want to calibrate our conscience by the word of God and learn what is right and what is wrong. But remember, like in Romans 14, Jewish believers who came to Christianity still believe 
they couldn't eat those ham sandwiches. Couldn't eat that pork. And Paul says, well, you, sh- you, shouldn't, you shouldn't invite those people over to your house and, and say, here's the meal, here's pork. Because they still can't quite get over this yet. They, they still think it's, to them, it would be sinning. Now, hopefully they can learn that it's not, that the law's been done away with, we're not under the Mosaic law. But the point is, you don't want a person to go against their conscience. You want them to act in faith, believing that they're doing what God wants them to do. Well, in chapter 8, Paul says they should be willing then to give up their so-called right to eat this meat. Now, ultimately, they don't ultimately have the right because... There's demons behind these things, but you know they're arguing that we have the right because they don't exist. But even if you had the right, therefore you should consider your your example, your, the, the issue of your fellow believer. And so in chapter nine, Paul uses himself as an example of someone who's willing to give up his rights to further to help a, a believer or further God, to further the gospel. Paul says, I have certain rights myself as an apostle. Particularly, he talks about the right to support uh, from people he's ministering to. And he says, you know, I'm going to use myself in this example here of a, of a person who's willing to give up those rights for the sake of another person, for the sake of the gospel. And that's what you should do. You should follow my example and be willing to give up your rights for the greater good in this case. So I say here, but before I say, we got to have a quiz. <laughs> food sacrifice to idols concerns food sacrifice to an idol and eaten in a pagan temple or shrine. It's true. This practice was condemned at the Jerusalem Council. True, it was. We read in Acts 15 that they condemned it. And said, uh, because remember the issue there was, do Gentiles have to keep the law and be circumcised? No, they don't. But they've got to stay away from idolatry. Idolatry. That's the big problem for Gentiles is idolatry. So they've got to, they can't, uh, they can't engage in idolatry. Paul agrees with the strong position of the Corinthians. Well, not really. The strong position, I mean, they, they don't use the word strong, but their position is the gods don't exist. And Paul says, there's truth in that, but their position is, therefore, we can just go to these temples. And Paul says, no. A Christian should never violate their conscience. True, he said. Paul is concerned that some believers at Corinth might be tempted to return to their former idolatry. That's true. And love for our fellow believers should always regulate our freedom in Christ. Get my handy dandy uh, remote out here. All right, we're looking at chapter 9 here, verses 1 through 27. Primarily in this chapter, Paul is offering himself as an example of self-sacrificial behavior that the Corinthians need to emulate. Paul, let's say Paul uses, Paul uses himself as an example of someone who voluntarily relinquishes his apostolic rights for the greater good of the gospel, which is what chapter 8 has been all about. The implication is that the Corinthians should follow their apostles' example and relinquish 
any presumed right they think they have to attend the pagan temples so as to avoid causing harm to their fellow believers. All right, let's look at, first of all, Paul's apostleship here in verse, this is 1 through 3. Paul says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our Lord? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Paul begins with four rhetorical questions, each expecting a positive answer. Garland suggests a paraphrase. As you well know, I certainly am free. As you well know, I certainly am an apostle. As you well know, I certainly have seen the Lord. As you well know, you are my work in the Lord. So these questions call attention to what the Corinthians already know, and Paul assumes they believe, and they have set the stage for the argument that follows uh, and uh, the outline that follows. Now, the first and second questions, am I not free, am I not apostle, are not going to be handled in, in a separate order. So the first issue he's going, to he's going to talk about is his apostleship, and then he'll talk about his freedom. So he raises the questions, but he's going to answer them in, in the opposite order here. So in 1, 1 through 14, Paul will deal with his apostleship. 15 through 23, he'll deal with his freedom. The last two questions present Paul's own view of apostleship by establishing that he is indeed an apostle. First he says, have I not seen the Lord? <coughs> so Paul is referring here, you remember, to his Damascus Road experience. He believed that his experience was more than just some kind of vision. For him, it was a resurrection appearance, uh, just like the apostles had had. Remember, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James then to all the apostles, and last of all, apparently his last appearance, physical appearance to anyone, was to the apostle Paul. So, I don't want to make too much out of this, but I wonder about people who said, I saw Jesus, you know, standing in my bed last night. Now, I think the last person who has seen the apostle, who's seen Jesus, was the apostle Paul the last of the apostles here, the last chosen apostle. So um, Paul says, are you not the result of my work in the Lord? This is Paul's second proof for his apostleship. He's seen the Lord, but his second proof is the establishment of churches in new areas. Paul says in Romans 15, therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God. By what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, that's kind of like Yugoslavia, or what used to be Yugoslavia there on the coast, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. 
It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ is not known, so I'd not be building on someone else's foundation. So Paul was a pioneer church planner, planting churches in Gentile areas primarily, where no one had gone before. Rather, it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. So Paul is writing to the Romans now, and he's at the end of his missionary journeys in the east. This is the end of his third missionary journey. He says, I'm planning to come to you, but the reason I haven't come is because there's already a church there. And I usually go where there are places where there are no churches and establish that's what I do as an apostle. 2 Corinthians 10, 13, he says, We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confess, confine our boasting to the sphere of service God himself has assigned to us, a sphere that also includes you, you Gentiles. We are not going too far in our boasting, as would be the case if we had not come to you. For we did not get as far as you for we did we did get I'm sorry we, for we did get as far as you in the gospel of Christ neither do we go beyond our limits of boasting of work done by others our hope is that your faith continues to grow and our sphere of activity among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in regions beyond you for we don't want to boast about work already done in someone else's territory so uh, the point being here is that um, the Corinthians owe their existence to the Apostle Paul. He established the church. He's the Apostle of Gentiles. He says, remember earlier, for even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, people who were concerned and look after you, you didn't have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father. I was the one who started the church. I gave the gospel to you. You came to faith through my apostolic ministry. So Paul is establishing here his credentials as an apostle. Verse 2. Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. The reference to others may refer to other Christians or other churches. That is, Paul may be allowing the hypothetical possibility that others outside the Corinthians' immediately immediate circle may have some reason for not thinking of him as an apostle. Probably the others refers to churches Paul did not establish. Paul says that while he may not be an apostle to the other churches and that he did not found them, he certainly is that to the Corinthians. This is the point of the final sentence. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So Paul uses this common metaphor, remember, of the seal that you would put on a document or something to seal it, to, to indicate authentication, to indicate ownership. So they are his seal. Remember Romans 1, 1 through 6. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was the descendant of David, and who the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we, that is he, receive grace and apostleship to do what? What is Paul's mission? To call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith, for your name's sake. 
So Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. His purpose is to bring them to faith. He says, after 14 years in Galatians 2, I went up to Jerusalem. I went again in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized the apostles in Jerusalem that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the the uncircumcised just as Peter to the circumcised. So Paul is saying, everybody recognizes that I'm an apostle and my mission is to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And their very existence authenticates his apostleship. Um, just the fact that he is an apostle and is saying this. Who is an apostle? An apostle is a representative of Jesus Christ. He speaks for Christ. There ain't no apostles today, friend. <laughs> There's nobody here who speaks for Jesus. Our pastor doesn't speak for now. We say he does speak for Jesus, but he doesn't speak for Jesus directly. The Word speaks. Our pastor gives us the Word, and we we're required we're required in Scripture to be under our pastor to obey our leaders and stuff like that. But he's not an apostle. I'm not an apostle. There aren't any apostles around. Everything has to be mediated through the Word. But the apostles spoke directly. They represented Christ. They were, they were as good as Christ here on earth. That was a special power, special authority that no one has today. There aren't any apostles. And so the very fact that he's an apostle and saying, don't go to the temples, that's all they need. <laughs> you don't, you, they don't need Paul to say, okay, Paul, give me the scripture verse on that. They don't need that. Paul's an apostle. He has the right to speak for Christ. He can command that. Verse 3. This is my defense to those who set in judgment on me. What Paul will now defend is his seemingly odd behavior, giving up his right to material support from the Corinthians. His failure to take material support would have seemed odd to them since itinerant teachers in Paul's day commonly gained their financial support by charging a fee for their instruction. Can you pass that basket? (laughs) Others accepted the patronage of some wealthy person or group. Traveling teachers who were concerned about their reputation, however, would often work at a trade. Paul received patronage, refused patronage, and worked as at his trade, not only in Corinth, but also in Thessalonica. You remember in uh, Acts chapter 18, when Paul comes to Corinth, that's where he establishes the church, Acts 18, on his second missionary journey. You remember, Paul left Athens, went to Corinth, there he met Aquila and Priscilla. And uh, Paul went to see them because he was a tent maker as they were, and he stayed and worked with them. So Paul, when he was at Corinth establishing that church, he was working with his hands, at his trade, what he was trained as a young man, as he was growing up as a Jewish young man. Same thing in Thessalonica. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. 
Nor do we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, work night and day, laboring and calling, so we cannot be a burden to any of you. So, um, the point is that Paul, as we'll see, has this policy that when he goes out and evangelizes new areas, he doesn't want to take any money from the people he is directly evangelizing. He doesn't want to, you know, go to a new place he's never been and the first thing do, take an offering, you know. Now, why does he want to do that? He wants to, as he'll tell us later, he, he thinks that could be confusing. Because that could make people think you're paying for this message. You're paying for the gospel. Remember, the gospel is the free grace of God. And Paul wants to exemplify that free grace of God by his establishing these churches. So he, he didn't want to take any money where he went. We, we kind of follow the same policy today in the sense of when missionaries go out to places, they usually will just establish a church. They're supported by someone. We send missionaries to places. We support them here. So that the people they're, they're, they're witnessing to, they're trying to establish in churches, they don't have to give them any support. They don't have to... So that, so it's not doesn't look like they're begging for money or something like that. So we kind of follow the same policy. Even, even in church, your you know, pastor will say, if you're a visitor, please just pass the plate. We, we you know, don't feel obligated because we don't want people who come to feel like, hey, we're here just to get your money, that kind of thing. No, we're here to give you the gospel. Now, as members, as believers, we have a responsibility to support the work of Christ, but we want to present the gospel as free, the free grace of God. So that's what Paul is trying to do, not put any hindrance to the gospel. Offer it free of charge. Well, we see Paul's apostolic rights in verses 4 through 14. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? So Paul, Paul begins his defense here with a series of rhetorical questions whose function is to demonstrate that he has the right of an apostle. So these questions here in verses 4 and 5, you can see they're kind of variations on the theme of verse 6, the right not to work for a living. Is it only Paul and Barnabas who do not have the right to work for a living? Question 1 in verse 4, the question 1 is in verse 4. The we in verse 4 and the following verses may refer to Paul and some of his traveling companions, or it could be what we call a literary plural, which is not uncommon in Paul. Primarily Paul is probably referring to himself. So Paul asks, do we not have the right to eat and drink? The key word here is the right. Paul is speaking of his right to room and board. Question two is in verse five. Paul asks, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as also the rest of the apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Again, this is related to this question of support, not only for oneself, but also for one's wife, one's family. So this verse suggests that at this time, Barnabas and Paul were single men. They were not married. And, uh, you know, they could have benefited from having a wife alone uh, to help them. And they would, have been, they would have had the right to be supported in that sense. The third question is in verse 6. 
it makes clear what the previous two questions were all about. As Paul says, Or do not I and Barnabas not have the right not to work for a living? So we should ask, tell, ask Pastor Ken. <laughs> the right not to work. He doesn't work for a living. Did you realize that Pastor Ken does not work for a living? It says, it says it right here. Not to work for a living. The issue is Paul's right not to work, meaning work with his own hands at a trade. Remember uh, 412, we work hard with our hands. When we are cursed, we bless. We are, we are persecuted. We endure it. Possibly Barnabas is mentioned here because he was well known to have worked at a trade with the Apostle Paul when they went out on their missionary journeys, when they evangelized. So Paul says he has the right, one, to have his daily needs supplied, and two, he says, to have a wife who would accompany him in his ministry, and three, not to have to work at a trade in order to carry out his ministry, his missionary ministry, his church planning ministry. Now, from here, he will present several kinds of illustrations to uh, further demonstrate this right. Verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? No one. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? So Paul now moves to illustrate the point of verses 4 and 6 with practices from everyday Work, the everyday work world. As before, Paul uses another set of rhetorical questions. The questions are taken from everyday work situations. The soldier, the farmer, the shepherd. Each expects an answer. No one. No soldier serves as his own expense. Uh, every wine dresser, you know, eats the grapes and every shepherd drinks the milk and so forth. So in everyday life, one expects to be sustained by one's own labors. So it should be with the apostle. He's working, he's laboring with the gospel. He could rightfully expect to be sustained from those who he is ministering to. He has that right. This, this church owes their existence to him. And he could rightfully expect them to support him. But remember, that doesn't seem to be Paul's policy. Paul will say, I'm, kinda, I'm willing to give that right up, even though I have it. Because I want to be an example of the freeness of the gospel. I want my life and my ministry to exemplify that. Verse 9, verse 8. Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? Paul now moves beyond his argument based on human analogies in verse 6. He supports his rights with an appeal to scripture. His argument takes the form of a couple of rhetorical questions. The first question, do I say this merely on human authority, expects a negative answer. No. Paul is referring to the immediately preceding illustrations of verse 7. It means, are the analogies I have just given based on merely human perspective? Of course not, is what we would expect in response. The first question sets the stage for the second question. Does, doesn't the law say the same thing? That is, we're talking about the Old Testament law of Moses here. Verse 9. For it is written in the law of Moses. Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in hope of sharing in the harvest. 
So I say here the four that begins verse nine indicates Paul is now going to explain his appeal to the law in verse eight. There is clear proof for Paul's previous argument in support of his apostolic rights written in the law of Moses. The text Paul cites is Deuteronomy 25.4. Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. This citation demonstrates by analogy from the words of Scripture that what was argued from everyday analogies in verse 7, that the laborer is permitted to enjoy the material benefits of the harvest even if the laborer is a lowly ox. So remember this text reflects the ancient agricultural practice in Israel or, you know, in all cultures at least of driving an ox uh, drawing a, a threshing sledge so that you would separate the kernels from the stalk I don't know anything about this, I'm just telling you <laughs> I've never even seen it well I've seen pictures of it you know. but anyway, that's that's what happened is happening here you you have this, this sled that you, you drive and that separates the kernels from the stalk So that's what Paul is referring to here. Uh, And out of mercy, the animals were not forbidden. They weren't muzzled. They were allowed to eat something on the way as they thrust this out and so forth. And Paul sees that now as written for us. I say there would seem to be a problem with Paul's explanation of the Old Testament text in verse 9, where he seems to deny the passage from the law expressed any concern for the ox. Is it about the oxen that God is concerned? However, Paul's purpose in this context is not to explain the meaning of the Old Testament text. Paul's question, is it about the oxen that God is concerned, is presented merely to set up the question in verse 10. Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Paul is viewing the the law here as teaching a general principle from which one can draw an analogy. So by their very nature, the Old Testament laws, which are limited in number, uh, do not cover all circumstances of life. They don't cover every situation. So they regularly function as more examples or paradigms. Here's the principle. Here's the paradigm for all sorts of applications. If you look at Deuteronomy 25 there, you'll see that there's all kinds of... Basically, everything is about human beings until you get to that ox there. <laughs> Quotation in 25.4. So he's talking about human relationships, but he's saying... This is true even of the lowly ox. That is, God wants you to be merciful and gracious. He talks about other human relationships. Even as you'd be merciful to a lowly sort of ox. So Paul, I say, is not denying the law's concern for oxen, but recognizing that the law's concern for oxen was ultimately a way of teaching, of teaching the law's concern for people teaching the Israel that the Israel that God was merciful and they should be merciful towards others. If God cares about the oxen, then he cares even more about human beings is the point. If he's concerned enough to make sure the oxen is taken care of, he's concerned about human beings. Paul is concerned here with the application of that Old Testament principle to his present situation. If God if God forbids preventing an oxen from enjoying benefits, of the work of threshing the grain, then how much more is a human apostle entitled to the benefits from his mission work? So I say, so in verse 10, Paul says that God was teaching more than concern for the ox in Deuteronomy 24 because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in hope of sharing the harvest. So human laborers also benefit from the law forbidding muzzling of an ox that is 
harness to tread the grain. Because by analogy, Paul says here, by analogy, they may also eat from the grain. He applies the analogy of the threshing uh, of the ox threshing the grain to an analogy from farming here, both of which make the point he, the apostle, has the right to material support. Verse 11. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? Paul now picks up the themes from the previous analogy, specifically applies them to the present argument. He has sown spiritual seed among them, the gospel, the truth. Thus, it should not be too much, therefore, for him to reap a material harvest from them. If others have so benefited from them, should not he have the right as well? So Paul's work in Corinth had been sowing the gospel which meant for them they were reaping spiritual things. They were reaching things of the Spirit. They were regenerated. Is it too much now that it should work in reverse that they should help him with material things? The final question in verse 12a puts Paul's argument in plain and direct language. Others have certainly been receiving the kind of support Paul is arguing for as his own right. Certainly their spiritual father was entitled to the same support. Now we don't know exactly who these others were. Uh, He talks about... these, numer- uh, these uh, numberless guardians in 415, other teachers maybe. We know there was Apollos who was there. Maybe they supported Apollos. You know. There's talk of Peter, remember, but we don't know whether Peter was really there. So it may have been uh, others who there. That was about the 10,000 guardians, you remember? 12b, but we did not use this right. On the contrary... We put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. There it is. We didn't use this right to support. Because we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel. Paul begins to explain why he did not use this right as others had. Now Paul will give a fuller explanation of why he did not use this right in verses 15 through 18. But before he gets there, we're going to see... He's going to kind of go back into his illustrations in verses 13 and 14. But he tells us the reason right here. I say Paul's basic reason for not demanding the material support he was rightfully entitled to was his concern for the effectiveness of his gospel ministry. Paul explains that rather than exercise his right to material support, he was willing to put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul has in mind anything that would hinder evangelism anyway. Uh... The gospel of Christ is a phrase that occurs over and over again. And it always refers in Paul to this preaching of the gospel. I was trying to show this. Um, if you look at like the New, uh, the New American Standard, it translates the Greek pretty literally here, just word for word. When I came to Troas for the gospel, there's the word here. I came to gospel for the purpose of the gospel. I came to Troas for the purpose of the gospel. What does that mean for the purpose of? Well, the King James put to preach the gospel. They put it in italics because it's not technically there. But other translations, yes, we just say preach the gospel. The point is, that's the meaning. When Paul talks about the gospel of Christ, he's talking about the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. And always preaching the gospel to non-Christians, especially to Gentiles. So therefore, when it comes to a choice between his rights as an apostle... And others hearing the gospel is no choice at all for Paul. 
that is, if it, if it comes down to that. Anything that would get in the way of someone hearing the gospel can be set aside. And that's, that's, a, that's an amazing statement when you think about that. You know, we could, we could think about that for our own lives a little bit. Anything that gets in the way of someone hearing the gospel can be set aside. That's tough in our society because we're in a society that... there's anything that's, that's the, the religion of our society, it's our own self-autonomy. <laughs> our own rights. Hey, I, don't tell me. I have a right. That's Our Christian culture is, is absolutely contrary to that kind of thinking, but... It permeates everything. So, um, what kind of hindrance did Paul have? He says he puts up with anything so he won't hinder the gospel of Christ. Um, what does he, what he, he doesn't say here, but the answer probably is going to come to us in 15 through 18, and I've mentioned it, that by preaching the gospel freely, that is without pay, without expecting support, Paul is able to be an example of the free nature of the gospel. So Paul's conduct is contrary to those itinerant preachers. 2 Corinthians 2.17, he'll talk about some outsiders who've come into Corinth. Unlike many, we don't peddle the word of God for profit. Boy, <laughs> think about our... They, shows they had TV preachers. They did have TV preachers back then. They had TV preachers back then, yeah. They peddle the word of God for profit. And Paul practiced this location, this every, all locations we know about. Second Thessalonians, first we looked at first and second Thessalonians. Verse 13. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? And that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar. Paul interrupts his explanation of why he gave up his rights. He said, I gave them up, I don't want to hinder the gospel. He, he, he goes back now to support his argument again. These are illustrations that are more closely parallel to the situation since they involve religious service. When Paul uses the expression, don't you know that, he is always, it, it, it always has, I should say not he, it always has the sense that it is something the Corinthians certainly know or should know. In this case, we can be sure they knew because in both Jewish practice and pagans practice, they knew, they went to the temples, that those who worked in the temple, they got to eat from those sacrifices. They, they could take part of that in Jewish and in pagan temples. So when he says, don't you know? Yes, they knew that those who serve get their food from the temple. Verse 14, in the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Based on the preceding analogy, in the same way Paul caps off his argument with a word from the highest possible authority, Christ himself. The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Apparently Paul's argument here comes from events described in the gospels. You remember when Jesus sent out his disciples on these short missionary trips. He sent them out on various times. And he gave them instructions about proclaiming the gospel when they went out on these daily sort of missions um, and about those who they stayed with. And remember he says, stay there when you go to these people's houses, they invite you in, eating and drinking, whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. 
Paul is apparently, we think, thinking about this kind of text from the Lord, where he says, you as apostles have the right to be supported by the people you're ministering to here. And Paul is apparently thinking of that sort of a text, we think. Well, Paul's apostolic restraint, verses 15 through 18. This section may seem a little strange. Paul has previously vigorously defended his rights to the Corinthian support. Now he argues for his right to give it up. However, the full context here indicates that this has been his point all along, really, as I've been talking about. Paul's overall concern has been to explain in terms of his own unique relationship with the gospel why he has deliberately not accepted patronage from the Corinthians. Verse 15. But I have not used any of these rights, and I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. For I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. Paul's argument returns to what he began to explain in verse 12b. But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. The argument of verses 3 through 14 was that Paul had the right to material support, but he now repeats, even though he has this right, I have not used any of these rights. And to make sure that that's clearly understood, he says, furthermore, I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. That is, he's not writing this defense so that they will now begin to do for him what they have been doing for others. Paul is so concerned for what he has been writing Paul is so concerned that what he has been writing in verses 3 3 through 14 about his right to support in the gospel might be misconstrued as a backhanded way of trying to actually secure this right that he rather emotionally explains, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. The word boast is not to be taken here as sort of in the negative sense of prideful boasting. Here it's more like the idea of glorying in something good. Paul believed that for him to have assumed his apostolic rights to support would have put a hindrance in the way of his proclaiming the gospel. We put up with anything, you remember, verse 12b, that would have the hint of the gospel of Christ. Thus Paul says that no one will allow no one will allow Paul to deprive him of his boast. Paul is apparently referring to his not accepting support for their for for those he evangelizes. So he could boast our glory, as he will say in verse 18, because he offered the gospel free of charge. Paul was not carrying out uh, his assignment here uh, as though it were a job that he was paid for. Verse 16. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. For woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. The four that begins this verse indicates Paul's purpose is to explain the final part of verse 15 um, about not allowing anyone to deprive him of his boast. Paul's boast, contrary to what we might think, is not that he is willing, not that he willingly preaches the gospel. That's not his boast. But why can't Paul boast in his willingness to preach the gospel? First, he says, I am compelled to preach. Paul is here speaking about his divine destiny. So Paul is saying, or we know from Paul, that to preach the, for Paul to preach the gospel is not something he chose to do. 
It's not something he volunteered for. It's something he must do. God had ordained a destiny for Paul from his birth and revealed it to him. Remember uh, Acts 26, one of the accounts of the Damascus Road. He said, when I was going to Damascus, I saw a light from heaven. I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the ghost. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant, as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them, to the Gentiles, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive the forgiveness of sins. So Paul didn't volunteer for this. God said, you do this. Here's what you will do. Galatians 1, 15 and 16. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb. Okay, it started right there. God is sovereign. He set me apart from my mother's womb for this task. And he called me by his grace. Was pleased to reveal his son to me that I might preach him on the Gentiles. My immediate response was not to consult with any human being. So from this time on, the time of his conversion, proclaiming the Christ to the Gentiles was his calling and his compulsion. He had to do it because God had laid hold on him. I say Paul is under such divine compulsion that he says, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Since this is Paul's divinely appointed destiny, he would stand under divine judgment, Paul says. Woe to me if I don't fulfill the task that God has revealed for me. So Paul's point is, I can't boast in preaching the good news of Christ to the Gentiles because I'm not doing this because I just looked out there and saw this need and I said, I'm going to do what others aren't doing. No, God just said, you do this. God commanded me to do this. And he's God, right? He said, you know. He's the creator, I'm the creature. And if God says, do this, then Paul said, I have to do it. Verse 17, if I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. What we might expect next in Paul's argument is an explanation of what Paul's boast does consist of. Since it doesn't consist simply of being willing to preach the gospel. Instead, Paul further elaborates on what he has just said in verse 16 about the compulsory nature of his task of preaching the gospel. In thinking about his own work of preaching the gospel, Paul conceives of two possible alternatives that a person might carry out that task. The free individual and the slave. So one can do a job voluntarily, that is, as a free person, or one can do a job as not voluntarily, as a servant, as a slave. So if one does it free, one is entitled to reward, obviously. You know, if you if you work for an employer, you're doing it voluntarily, you expect a reward. The slave does not expect a reward. He's, being, he's doing because his master says. The word reward here refers to pay in that sense. So he says, if I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. That's merely intended to set up what's really true about Paul. But if not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. Paul, as he sees, Paul, as he sees his calling, does not preach the gospel voluntarily. 
Now, it's not that Paul is being forced against his will to preach the gospel, that, but because he has been especially called to do the work of God, do, the, do this work by God himself, he cannot be seen as a volunteer. That's the point Paul is saying. Not that he hates this, it's, you know, he just hates it, but the point is he's not really a volunteer. That fact rules out any possibility of a reward or pay in Paul's case. God doesn't owe me anything here. I do the, I'm doing this as because God said so. Paul's point is the one with which he began verse 16, remember. He cannot boast in preaching the gospel because he does not do so of his own choosing. If he had done of his own volition, then he is entitled to pay. So Paul's apostleship is similar to a steward. In the ancient world, a steward who was in charge of an estate, of a household, was mostly generally a slave. And so you had a slave, and he may be well-educated, maybe captured as a prisoner, but he would take care of your estate if you were a rich or wealthy person. But you didn't pay this guy. He, the steward is just entrusted with managing a household. He's entitled to no pay, which is exactly what Paul will say in this next verse, verse 18. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. What then is my reward, Paul asks, since Paul did not volunteer to perform the task of preaching the gospel to Gentiles, he is not entitled to be paid, but he does have a reward. Paul considers the privilege of preaching the gospel free of charge, the privilege of not exercising his right, a reward in that of its that of itself and the source or the basis of his pride. Paul says, that's my boast. That's what I can glory in, the fact that I preach the gospel and I don't expect to be compensated for that. It's this inner reward that comes from knowing that he's preaching, you know, voluntarily in a sense, offering the gospel free of charge. He's not making use of his right to gain support for the preaching. By preaching the gospel without pay, without but without any pay, uh, freely without pay, he's able to illustrate, as we said, the free nature of the gospel. So in this way, Paul shows uh, his own application of the principle that we offered earlier in the discussion, or he discussed earlier, about whether to meet eat whether to eat meat sacrificed at the te- at an idol temple. While he while uh, he felt that he had. You, you might have the personal right to eat that meat. He voluntarily gave up that right, he says. He gave up that right not to, to eat meat because he didn't want to put a stumbling block in front of other Christians. He didn't want to do anything to harm the gospel ministry. So he's trying to use that to illustrate chapter 8. I, Paul, have the right to this material support Um. And I did not take it because I want to offer the gospel free of charge. And I can boast about that because God doesn't expect that, you know. So I could be, I could do this. His own ministry is a living example of the gospel. That's what he wants. He gave up his right in order not to put a stumbling block in the way of the gospel. 
because he could see that as he goes out to these mission areas and he preaches the gospel, if he's demanding money right at the beginning, that could put a stumbling block. That could make people think that the gospel is something you pay for. It's a religion that you that you pay for, and you you know we think about the Reformation and we think about indulgences and <clears throat> giving money to get people out of purgatory. You know, it's just despicable, isn't it? To think about that that kind of thing. It just destroys the free nature of the gospel. And Paul didn't want to do that at all. He wanted to have a message that was not encumbered by any of those details. And so that's why he says, I'm willing, that's why I willingly gave up my rights. So look, Corinthians, at my example. See what I've done and follow that. All right, let's stop here and we'll come back to this next week. Next week, right? We'll finish chapter nine. Thank you. <laughs>